As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you see that episode of Documentary Now, the, the parody they did of Vice? Oh, yeah, it was great. Drones, a consortium of participant journalists whose motto is balls to the walls. And it should be noted that both balls and walls are spelled with Zs. It's all about these hipster bro reporters who fly off to Latin America to embed themselves with a homicidal criminal, who they are reporting on. We suddenly had unprecedented access into the life of the world's most dangerous drug trafficker. Oh my God, I've never done this much coke in my life. But they are fools who have no clue what they're doing or, or where they are, and they're more interested in posing for the camera and making themselves to the story than covering the story, and things go horribly wrong. What's going on, fellas? How's it going? So Kyle and John were dead. Luckily for us, they'd already recorded their voiceovers. Was that about you? I mean, I'm sure it was inspired by me. Ten years ago, Rocco Castoro went from having the coolest job in journalism to being an industry-wide laughingstock, instantly. He'd been hired at the age of 29 to be the editor-in-chief of Vice News, and he scored exclusive access to the biggest story in America, the international manhunt for an alleged murderer, the fugitive tech magnate, John McAfee. You will remember that name from your McAfee antivirus software. John McAfee is a wanted man with the McAfee manhunt right now in full swing. Silicon Valley golden boy is now in hiding somewhere in Central America. This was a story that CNN and the other cable news stations were addicted to. Where in the world is John McAfee? He's with me, suckers, reported Rocco Castoro. 
But when Vice boasted about that, they forgot to scrub the metadata from the picture of John McAfee posing with Rocco in Guatemala. That told the cops where McAfee was, and he was soon in police custody. Rocco had broken the big rule. He made himself the story. And his team accidentally handed over his source to the authorities. Or so it seemed. A decade later, and the story of McAfee is now the subject of a hit Netflix documentary. It's called Running with the Devil, The Wild World of John McAfee. And it is wild. But is it true? Rocco Castoro is in this documentary, and the story of his humiliation plays out much as we thought it had 10 years ago. Cybersecurity expert, founder and developer of the famed McAfee antivirus software, and now also a possible 2016 libertarian presidential candidate. Yeah, it was totally fuck you. I've got the exclusive everything. Suck my, yeah, every, yeah. We're vice. We're here to stay. We're living in a movie right now, so... You know, hopefully nobody dies. John McAfee has been found dead in a prison in Barcelona. But what if there was more to the story? The circumstances surrounding McAfee's death are so fishy, they came with a side of chips and tartar sauce. I got a call from Texas. It's me, John. I paid off people to pretend that I am dead, but there are only three persons in this world that knows that I'm still alive. But Rocco and other people featured in this doc say that it is filled with lies and misrepresentations. Rocco has been tweeting and podcasting about this and settling old scores. He says he has the receipts to prove that everybody got this wrong. He says he's on a mission of revenge. And he joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Alexandria Bose, Cameron McLean. Cassandra Madvenko, Florian Francois, Nick Noble, Jean-Michel Baudry, Sean Brown, and Thomas. Hey, I'm Tom, software developer from Toronto. I've been a fan of Canada Land and its gaggle of other shows since 2019. I love the diversity of coverage. You always end up learning something you wouldn't expect. And uh, Jesse's unpragmatic commitment to good journalism. I'm going to try to put this into like wider cultural context and sort of journalism industry context for people. And you tell me if you think I'm describing this right. This is sort of a time when it's just becoming apparent how much trouble newspapers are in. Newspapers are looking like absolute dinosaurs, endangered species. And meanwhile, Vice is shifting from a culture brand to also being this ballsy news brand. and inking deals with HBO and CNN and Viacom and Rupert Murdoch and money is flooding in. And the attitude is that old shit is dead. This is the new shit. And we have a totally different attitude. We are going to cover the news our way and you better watch the fuck out. And here's the editor in chief of a global news organization. He's 29. Yeah, that was um, uh, the situation I found myself in, I guess you could say. I never thought when I started and moved to New York from Florida, you know, about a year and a half out of journalism school, where in Gainesville I was working for an alt-monthly magazine. You know, it all happened so quickly. And yeah, that was the vibe. And I think the idea of what really attracted me 
from a just from a writing standpoint was the idea of immersion what what vice was calling immersive content which was really first person almost literary journalism but inserting yourself like trying to live with this group of people almost from an anthropological point of view i figured if you could bring news chops and the right kinds of stories to this with the right kinds of artists and photographers and filmmakers there was something that was definitely kinetic. There's a lot of energy and, and creativity around that. And the response really from people such as Robert King, who is a conflict photographer and videographer who's been in pretty much every war since Grozny. And I started working with him on things like Ground Zero Syria. Gathered near the historic old city, fighters of the Free Syrian Army clashed with forces of President Bashar al-Assad. My whole idea was as raw as it gets, a guy with a camera, you know, in this case, no, no correspondent besides the guy with the camera. And that allows him to go in and bed with snipers uh, with the Free Syrian Army and bring back just insane footage that really, to this day, I think uh, should be ingrained in the historical record of what war crimes look like. And that freedom was not offered in other places, at other newsrooms, but particularly the freelancers and the people on the ground really responded to it. Even if we couldn't afford certain things that other, other places could, they knew that their photos would run, they knew that the video would run, and it would be very close to the experience that they had. And then on the other side, of course, there was having sex with donkeys in Mexico or whatever. But, but just that aspect of like, we're not going to just report on the experience, we're going to try to experience what our subjects are experiencing. Well, I think it was striking to viewers and it was really ahead of its time in certain ways and anticipated, I think, the distrust that people were increasingly having towards, you know, you'd see some far-flung place, some conflict zone, but then in between you and the news story was some haircut, you know, was somebody right. sent from, you know, New York who looked completely out of place and they were supposed to be there for your sake. And they're saying like, hello, I am the voice of authority. I will interpret what we're seeing. And just visually having people in like casual clothing, not posturing as being so detached from the events, but getting, you know, as you say, immersed in the events, it just looked more real. It felt more urgent and real. You guys were playing with the line between what you're covering and yourself and getting immersed in it. And there's a line there that, that had traditionally been observed. And you were like, fuck that line. We're going in. And that certainly was exciting and new, but a lot of people said there's a reason that line exists, right? Sure. And, you know, I would say in the case of McAfee, at least personally for me, it's quite a singular event there. But I've always preferred to be honest with the reader about my own experience. I do think that some of the best journalism out there, and there's different forms, just like painting or, or writing in general. But the idea being, if this story is so either complex or unbelievable, quite frankly. I've always been drawn to stories like that. I've lived with a cult in Siberia for two weeks. It was about three or three to 4,000 people, literally eight hours from the nearest town in Siberia, run by this guy, Vasarion, who's now in jail, actually, that thought he was Jesus, thought he was the second coming. So I'm like sleeping in a manger. And I mean, how am I supposed to write about that kind of stuff or document it uh, on camera? It would be almost disingenuous if I weren't uh, relaying my experience. Now, is that proper for covering 
war on the ground, I don't think it's necessary because the, the images themselves can usually tell most of the story along with perhaps some commentary or, you know, at least summaries. Uh, and I just like the idea of being able to play with all these different forms of storytelling. To me, the world's so complex, there's room for all of that. I mean, the, the company was called Vice. And to me, the, the concept of Vice applied to everything, whether it was politics or, you know, of course, sex, drugs, and rock and roll or whatever. But the, the idea of what's behind the curtain. And and a lot of times you can't peer behind that curtain without involving yourself. Let's back up a bit and let's change our focus and talk about you and, and the story that I think has really been the central story in your life as a journalist. Uh, everything seems to hinge on on this thing that happened 10 years ago. Can you set the stage for me as to like before John McAfee came in your life and you f- flew to go cover this, what was going on with you? Where were you at? What was happening? Sure. I was at Vice uh, Media, had started there as an intern in late 2006, I believe, and then sort of skyrocketed through the ranks because of a v- various things, people quitting, people getting fired, and really they had no one else to to sit in the seat of editor-in-chief right around 2011, 2012, as the company itself was transforming sort of from a free lifestyle or skateboarder hipster mag that, you know, was basically chasing fashion ads, et cetera, and into a digital media brand that was eventually, you know, valued unjustly or not at around $5 billion. But that was a really interesting time where you had Spike Jones kind of coming in. There was some money from Viacom. Vice had started this separate website called VBS, which I think Viacom demanded for their sort of, you know, and at the time they really thought this could be a competitor to YouTube. I mean, that's what people were were really thinking at that time. And so it was a pretty chaotic but creative time where you could kind of do anything you wanted. I, I was one of the few people in the in the building with a journalism degree. I took over as editor-in-chief and about a year and a half later, sort of when this McAfee story came out of the blue and I had gone from, I think, a staff of maybe half a dozen, if not less, to really just exponentially every year getting another 10, 15, 20 people. Of course, they had global offices. At the time, too, you know, we had an HBO deal on the horizon. People may remember uh, around the same time, some of my colleagues were going to North Korea to meet with Kim Jong-un, which, quite frankly, I always thought was ridiculous and I think has proved to be probably wasn't the best move. So we're here just about to play a quick pickup game. Super casual, really relaxed, uh, with a few Harlem Globetrotters, and a bunch of North Koreans, and myself, uh, as Dennis Rodman and Kim Jong-un watch. On the other side of things, I was really trying to do the news. I took them seriously, my bosses, when they said, you know, go do the news. And so I happened to get, at the time, what was the biggest story in the world kind of came to me. You lived through a pretty thrilling experience for any reporter. John McAfee, this weird figure, this whatever, gazillionaire tech guy who's disappeared to Belize with some harem of young women and doing weird drugs. Everyone's sort of aware of this guy. And then it became the biggest news story, maybe in the world, certainly in America, that he is on the run as a murder suspect in the murder of his neighbor in Belize. And what, he calls you and says, hey, it's John McAfee, you can come cover me. (laughs) Pretty much. I mean, 
one of his or a representative, I, I should say, called, and I didn't believe him. I, I got prank calls all the time. Uh, I wasn't particularly vested in the story. Of course, I was following it, but did I expect this guy to call me and then say, "Hey, John's going to call you tomorrow." I'm like, "Oh, sure," and then he does. No, you don't. You don't become more of a, a, a shit magnet than that, I guess. <laughs> John McAfee calls you out of the blue, <laughs> but um. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody at the office even believed me, you know, where I was like, hey, I'm going to go do this story. Is it cool? Like, I probably should be getting like kidnap and rescue insurance or something, but we don't have that here, but that's fine. And honestly, I... Did you have anything? Hold on, hold on. Did, did you have like conflict zone reporting training? Did you have any of that stuff? Uh, I can't remember if I had formally gone through hostile environment training or not at the point. I don't think I did, no. But that was part of the... I had just been started working with Robert King on this serious stuff. He had come into the office. First time I had met him actually for uh, Ask Me Anything on Reddit regarding this, the serious series. And it was just, you know, doing gangbusters. And so with King, I knew he was game. That It would almost be like a vacation <laughs> for him. Part of, for me, what the story was about. Where in 10 years hindsight, he really was sort of the archetype of of what we see in a lot of characters today, you mentioned him blogging live while on the run. I mean, that was really novel back then. No, that's what I think part of the reason the media was so um, enthralled with it because it had never been done like that. And he was such a character. I instantly, you know, actually felt a lot more, as, as, as ironic as it sounds, comfortable around him with what his intentions were with us. Within like an hour in the car, McAfee plants a story in AFP with one of the passengers in the car, one of his friends, and his blog where he triangulates the sourcing and gets AFP to report that he's just been picked up in Mexico while we're driving the other direction to Guatemala. And they they run it. And to watch something, what people would call, you know, as um, cliche as the term is now, fake news, that, that didn't exist back then in terms of, you know, what people would call fake news. And even what people call fake news today, it's like, it's something else, but literally he, he manufactured fake news in front of us on camera and it took him all about 10 minutes. Has contacted the, uh, the blog with the information that Mr. McAfee has been arrested just across the border of Belize in the country, in the country of Mexico. Write that down. How long ago did this happen? This happened uh, over an hour ago. You've been on the run. You just got across. You were with me. It was a failed escape. Okay. I was apprehended in Mexico. I'm calling in a tip about John McAfee. He got apprehended in Union in Mexico. I just barely escaped. Uh, what does it say? Antivirus software wanted by authorities and police for his neighbor's murder has been captured. We've received unconfirmed reports that McAfee's been captured at the border of Belize and Mexico. Police say they simply want to question that to that today. Who was their source? That was terrifying, fascinating, and and obviously great content. You've got this kind of exclusive seat to be like, okay, this guy's a liar, and he and he lies to reporters, and he and he leads them on and fakes them. But we're right with him, and he's doing it in front of us, and we're getting to document him doing it. So I guess he's not. I guess there's like a suggestion there that like that's not what's happening to you. Well, of course, it's it gets a little like I don't know postmodern or something. So it was on my mind, but certainly at least until we got to Guatemala, I knew there wasn't much leverage over us because he kind of needed us, right? In terms of, he looked at it as some form of protection, I think, which I'm sure it was on some level. It was much less likely that he would get picked up. Or killed. Or killed. Yeah. But, you know, but then again, it's like, 
it allows him to amplify that myth. And we, our point of view was that we would post dispatches in real time, which we ended up posting at least a couple of them, sort of like what Robert was doing in Syria, but obviously like reporting a long form article, taking photos, and then at the end, putting it all together as, as a film. That was, that was the plan. That was the plan, but it didn't work out that way. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help, and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Here you are with McAfee and all the cable news channels. Where's McAfee? Where's McAfee? Every, every legacy journalist, where's McAfee? Where's McAfee? And then Vice posts it. It's a photo of McAfee smiling and you're there next to him. And the headline is, we are with John McAfee right now, suckers. This is like the quintessential vice story. It's the proof in the pudding of everything that you were promising the world as a news organization. And it was a fuck you. You want to follow this story? We are rolling with this guy. And the decision to put yourself in the photo and the decision to have a headline that began with the word we, like literally you're centering yourself in the story, is why nobody felt bad to make fun of you when the realization was made that the photo was uploaded with geodata tags that actually told the world exactly where that photo had been taken. And somebody on Twitter said, oh, they are right next to the pool at the Nana Juana Hotel Marina and Yacht Club in Guatemala. And John McAfee was soon arrested. And this is every reporter's worst nightmare. You gave up your source accidentally 
And the fact that you did it in the context of a brag meant that there was no mercy. Sure. And the interesting part is that we got calls from reporters before this happened, right? A couple, some people, you know, because John had posted on his blog, which I, I really preferred that he would not, but obviously he was going to do what he wanted. Didn't say our names, but I think he was trying to force us to report some stuff. And I knew this might happen. We started getting calls from Fox, from other places. And we decided collectively we'd put a press release out, like the comms team advice wanted that. I would have, I still stand by the statement, like, yeah, we're with John McAfee suckers. We've been filming all of your other interviews where he's telling you bullshit that you're reporting. And like, we're going to feed it back to you. You weren't the clowns. They were the clowns. And I know that part of what you are speaking up about now is that it was not your mistake, that you, in fact, you told your colleagues, your team back in New York, take a screenshot of the photo. Do not include the geodata. You were aware of that liability. And and it, actually, when I heard you explain why you didn't just do that yourself, it did make sense that you wanted you wanted your colleagues to have the geodata in case something happened to you. People, you know, that was a way to leave breadcrumbs so people could find you. Somebody, and maybe in the rush to publish this, this huge scoop, failed to take your orders and they published it too soon with the geodata included. Shit happens in the news business. I, I bump a little bit on what happened next, which is like, and, and this isn't, to me, it's a fascinating story because now you are involved in the story. You've changed the trajectory of the story. And now it's a PR problem where Vice has to put out a press release. McAfee is now kind of like trying to spin what you did. And he's lying and saying, I included the geodata on purpose. I hacked it to throw the authorities <laughs> off the scent, which is actually an insult against you because it suggests that you were colluding with him to throw the authorities because you're not supposed to alert the authorities to where he is, nor are you supposed to help him escape, right? So now you're kind of like on the run with him, not covering him, but somehow sucked into being a part of his deceptions. And then your videographer, I believe, backed up McAfee and said, oh yeah, the geodata is not true. Maybe trying to somehow like erase the mistake, but but now actively deceiving the public, which is the opposite of what journalists are supposed to do. Like it became a fucking mess, right? It was a total mess. And I mean, the series of events is pretty simple. It's like they asked for a press release, but that was the same press release that went out. In other words, the thing that ran on the blog was the press release. And from what I recall, the press release email, I remember checking it, did not have the geodata in it. So what went out to the press did not. I then went and did a master sit-down interview. In fact, I think Netflix even uses it as their key image for the trailer with McAfee. And then when we came back, that's when somebody saw that the coordinates had been tweeted. So they pulled it out of the photo on vice.com and were able to find the EXIF data, which was a surprise to me because... Obviously, some people did follow the instructions to send it out without the metadata, and other people didn't. And, you know, you've used a content management system, a CMS, whatever. You could probably have dragged a photo directly from an email into the CMS, and it wouldn't have necessarily scrubbed the metadata. So however that specifically went down the technical side, yeah, we wound up in a situation. And then, of course, you know, you've got McAfee saying stuff, King saying stuff. Meanwhile... I'm on the phone. I'm saying it's not a big deal because he didn't get arrested until after he went to Guatemala City and announced that he was there and gave a press conference. The geodata itself did not impede McAfee. I got I to gotta challenge a little bit 
what you're suggesting, which is that there was sort of no practical consequence to the geodata leak. Because one thing that I oh no no for like, sure like like there there was practical consequence yes, but there was no, he it did not he did not get arrested because of that. I want to make sure that that's clear. Is that true though? Because one thing that that struck me from watching your footage in in the Netflix documentary is that this guy was a highly intelligent actor who was constantly improvising to the circumstances. And and is it not possible that once it became clear that you had revealed the basic whereabouts, he had to change his plan and say, well, rather than be taken, I will now go and let myself be arrested and give a press conference, which, which likely would not have happened had you not revealed the geodata. Well, it's, it, it's a good question. And I mean, you know, I guess my answer would, would be his girlfriend at the time, her great uncle just happened to be the former attorney general of Guatemala, right? So certainly it was his intention, as he told us, was to try to claim political asylum in the country. Uh, I would imagine, I, I think he knew this fact, he didn't disclose it to us, that that was her great uncle who's not dead, Telesforo Guerra. I would think it, it appeared that he always had planned to use him for his political asylum. So it was Telesforo's suggesting that he give the press conference. How much of that was planned out pre-ahead? I mean, I don't think he changed his course of plans to go to Guatemala City because of the geodata. I guess we'll never know. I guess we'll never know, but certainly he did not get arrested until... No one knew he was in Guatemala City until he gave that press conference, which was a six-hour drive away from where the geodata leaked. So did he change his plans? It's a good question. You know, there's a lot of plot points in this drama that could either be explained by just like fuck ups and sloppiness or happenstance, or somebody introduces a conspiracy theory driving it. There's also a theory out there that Vice leaked the geodata on purpose. <laughs> well, you know, from what I was told, it was a mistake. I was apologized to as though it were a mistake. I don't know. Let me ask you if Vice leaked the geodata on purpose. What would the repercussions of that have been in terms of like, what would their reasoning have been and what were the potential repercussions? Would it have been worth it? I can't figure out that conspiracy theory because I, I think it was pretty disastrous for their budding credibility as a news brand. So why, why, the, like, right. why the fuck would it they do that? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I mean, I was told, I'll, I'll say this, I had press planned by the comms team after the geodata leaked. I can't remember if it was Good Morning America or um, the other live morning show that was going to do an interview with me live from Belize. And that was canceled by my press team a day later. And the reason I was given later when I got back was I was like, why would you cancel my press? It would have allowed us to explain what happened with the leak. I, I think even McAfee would have given a statement confirming that as we've you know videotaped several times. Why would they cancel the press that was bigger press than Vice had ever had at that moment. And the answer I was finally given by one of the comms team was, you can't have that level of exposure before other people at the company do. Rocco, like, okay, so you're, you're in this spot and everyone's taking their shots at you and your response is, all right, jackasses, you can have your laughs today, but we have the exclusive, we have the full story. And, and I think you said something specifically, like when we publish our cover story and our like feature length documentary, we'll take our knocks for this fuck up. But ultimately this story is solid and we have the exclusive and all will be explained and all will be revealed. And that's a gift to your employer. 
and Good Morning America wants to have you on to talk about it. But the cancellation of that segment was only the first thing because they also canceled the cover story and that documentary never came out. And it's 10 years before we've seen most of this footage until Netflix puts this documentary together. So on the one hand, I kind of can see like, I know that Shane Smith has sort of stolen the spotlight from reporters when there've been really big stories and he sort of inserted himself as the, the person who gets the airtime. So there's a little bit of credibility to, to that idea that maybe maybe you were getting too big, but I don't buy that. Why would they spike an exclusive on the biggest story in America? There's got to be another explanation. I don't know. I did have Gregory Falls, his family's lawyers, call me and tell me I had blood on my hands because the story wasn't going to run. Gregory Falls is the murder victim who probably was killed by John McAfee and— yes. And his family, his survivors wanted your story to come out and they blamed you specifically and personally for, for the fact that it didn't come out. Then I talked to the attorney and he actually, when I told him what, what happened, which he was one of the few people I actually told because I felt awful. And I was like, listen, you don't even understand how terrible it is. I have details that show, you know, the neighbors were talking about how Fall was, was threatening to kill John's dogs, that other dogs on the island were poisoned with a, a fertilizer, Furidan. And that John shot his dogs. This is another neighbor saying this, put him out of their misery. And then, you know, was screaming, I'm going to kill the motherfucker who, who did this. You actually had new shit. You had new reporting to come out with. So what is your feeling? Why do you think they spiked the story? I mean, look, aside from egos, et cetera, it butts up against the Vice on HBO show. And there was this big centerpiece of Dennis Rodman, North Korea. Was there some kind of undercut where... If it wasn't going to be on the HBO show, they didn't want it. I heard murmurs of that too. Again, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I can't tell you why they killed the story other than those two reasons. It's the one question I'm left with, but I'm curious to hear what you think because I'm done speculating. You know, there's there's so many different things I've been told. I think I can offer you a pretty reasonable guess. They chickened out just at the moment when they most needed their credibility you embarrassed them and they might've been able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. If they had just like doubled and tripled down as you wanted them to and say, Let, let's get through this bad week with this geodata thing. Cause we, we still have a story everybody wants and it's good and we'll come out of this on top. But behind the scenes, they were making big money deals based on the contention that they could act as a reputable news organization and this was an early blunder that was endangering that. And you became a liability and the story became a liability and they decided to, f to throw their cards down, you know, like fold the hand before it gets any worse. Do you think maybe part of it might have been that aside from the AFP story I kind of mentioned earlier on where he got that place in the AFP, there was also an interview with ABC News, for instance, uh, where, you know, some embarrassing things were said. Of course, some of it's performing for the camera, but the idea that we were filming the media filming him and actually he's manufacturing things in front of us. And my whole sort of takeaway was like, I'll take, you know, my knocks on geodata stuff, but the story, when we turn it around where AFP fell for this and this outlet fell for that and this outlet fell for that. And we were there to document it all. What does that say about all of it? That was sort of my, I always said, this is a story about the media. It's not a story about McAfee. You're saying there's a larger theme to this story. First of all, there's just factual information that we want to, as journalists, add to the record. And we actually have some things to reveal about other media that this guy was manipulating. And 
from their point of view, it's like, well, what does that get us? How does it help us to make AFP look bad or show how they were spun? But at the same time, 10 years later, I have a lot of thoughts about the film that I'll, I'll leave aside. Running with the Devil is not my film. My, my story was called Running with McAfee. My film was called Running with McAfee. And there is sort of a film within a film. I did not control the edit on. I'm not credited. But my point is, it still went to number two or three on Netflix in, in many countries. It's number one in some. Obviously, people wanted to see the content. And so I feel somewhat vindicated in the sense that imagine if it did run 10 years ago. I mean, wouldn't it have cemented Vice's reputation one way or the other as a news brand that was at least daring, you know? (laughs) How were you treated when you returned to work in New York? Well, rumors had been spread that I had Stockholm Syndrome and was doing bath salts with John McAfee. I guess it could be considered humorous. I think one of those Korean animation news YouTube channels did a pretty funny video uh, of where I'm like hitting a bong with McAfee or something. Obviously, none of that was true. Uh, in fact, I will say... As crazy as this sounds, it's we would have had it on camera. McAfee did not drink, and I did not see him consume any drugs. Other companions he was with seemed a bit more strung out, but I certainly didn't see him drink, and he drank like a fish in the years after that. I think he was perhaps quite worried about something. Back at work, like you weren't fired when you got back. You weren't reprimanded. You were still the editor-in-chief, but you've said that people around the office looked at you like you were dead. Yeah, they looked at me like I was dead. At some point, I kind of cut off contact with with the office itself. I mean, because they were telling me things like go to the embassy and talk to so-and-so. When I would call the U.S. embassy, they'd say no one by that name works here. We filmed all this, too. And I would imagine once we came back, they demanded to see a supercut, if you will, of what we filmed. So we put it together very quickly, Robert King and I. And once they realized that we continued filming when they had told us to stop, which (laughs) you'd have to be really a rube to listen to that advice because then you have no proof of what happened. And maybe that's why I wasn't fired, right? But I stayed there two, three more years, did a lot of other reporting that got tens of millions of views. Obviously, the profile of the company continued to increase. What was really odd about the situation was the longer it went on, uh, you know, I was told at the time too, no one will care about this guy in a year (laughs) and this is going to go away. I actually was probably making the least big a deal of it out of anyone. I had written my story. I knew at some point it would come out and we moved on. You know, we were even being nominated for, um, you know, awards that Vice should not have been up for at this point. Nobody was continuing to make a big deal of it. However, as time went on, I even have recordings people have given me as early as last year of people telling people not to work with me because of this John McAfee thing. And it's people that pretended to be my friends. And I'm like, huh, what is that about? It's a story that journalists remember. I mean, I'll ask you, Jesse, it's like all these years later, is the truth exactly like you thought it was or is, was it different? I mean, I'm curious from your point of view. I've been reading your writing about this since the documentary came out and I've been listening to your podcast about it. And I've, I've, I've also been aware that you're settling some scores. You're certainly like filling in a lot of the blanks and your coverage about the environment advice. Like you've got all of the things that I kind of knew were happening there. The Sarush and Shane, the two co-founders, 
going from being the rebels to like trying to protect their brand and taking you off the story. And now they're like calling you back home. I heard your conversation with your colleague at the time, Sasha Hecht, when she says that like, you know, you, you say you returned to the office and you were persona non grata and you couldn't trust anybody or a lot of people. And she says that those who stood up for you systematically like lost their jobs over the years. And, and it makes total sense to me that they wouldn't immediately fire you because then maybe there's a wrongful dismissal thing. Plus you would probably talk. It's all consistent with my understanding, of, but it's nice to know the details. It's nice to hear it. Is it different than what I expected it to be? It's not terribly different. No. Right, right. That's kind of comforting to me in the sense that you were someone that has the experience in media and could see around the corner, but the public itself doesn't know how these things work. What I've learned about this since does suggest to me that though you made some mistakes, you were a bit of a scapegoat and a fall guy. I think that's probably true. Work speaks for itself. Uh, at the end of the day, that's all there is. I guess a lot of what I'm doing now is trying to turn this sort of insular media culture on its head a bit. I do think we've landed some massive scoops, you know, hours of audio from uh, the 2017 presidential inauguration that we're only very, very small way through this whole McAfee business as it does interrupted some of that, but we're getting back to it. As well as, you know, I spent about a year and a half filming with Val Brokschmidt, the Deutsche Bank whistleblower, someone who I was also actually chasing while still at Vice and wound up, you know, filming with. He was recently deceased a few months back, unfortunately, but he gave me quite the cache of documents. Uh, also some stuff regarding the Sony hack and North Korea. You're doing the work of investigative reporting and maybe having taken some lumps and with a bit of humility. Like, I don't, I don't see that same attitude on, on the nose on your on your website today? Well, certainly. I mean, this is my company. Vice was someone else's company. And what they wanted aesthetic-wise is what I provided, I think. I still stand by the fact that if the film would have run or the story would have run as was promised, I don't think you and I would be having this conversation right now. And I think it would have been a massive success. And any um, mistakes that would have been made would have been kind of held up like a mirror to the rest of the media. So I don't really regret any of the way that it was postured. I, I think it was stillborn. And it's, I, I do feel somewhat vindicated today in terms of how the hell would anybody even still be interested at 10 years later? Let's, let's dwell on it for a second, because I, I do think you are, and, and returning to kind of like the, the Poncier media theory, it was before Trump was president and, and it was before a lot of other fabulous, it was before fake news was known. I think you're onto something when you say that McAfee personifies misinformation, you know, here you have this guy becoming this cable news sensation and realizing, you know, all eyes are on me. I'll feed the beast. And in a sense, I kind of feel like, as I said, like the story is much smaller. Like there's no big conspiracy. This is just some scumbag who killed his neighbor because the neighbor killed his dogs. And uh, what do you do with that? You whip up a conspiracy theory that, no, it's because you, you are a genius who's able to spy on anybody in the world, and therefore governments want you dead, and the Belize government is after, out to get you. And you can get that message across because people can't get enough of your shenanigans. To separate what you were there for, like, okay, you were there for the truth, but you were also there for the content, you know, and you got more McAfee than anybody. Everybody wanted the content. You got the content. And that was like, that was the seed of destruction of trust in the media was that we would prioritize feeding that hunger over like, I don't know, how newsworthy is this guy really? How many, how many unsolved murders in Belize does like cable news in, in America tend to cover? The final thing in this crazy story with a pretty suggestive conclusion like, yeah, the guy's actually still alive. He faked his own death somehow. 
Right. I was quite surprised to see the filmmakers decided to end on that note. Certainly the woman who says it, who I spent quite a bit of time with in Belize, McAfee's ex-girlfriend, Samantha, I believe her name now is Samantha Herrera. She gave comment to Dow Jones earlier this week, claiming that her words were twisted out of context or were edited in the sense that I do know that she said someone was calling her pretending to be John. That seems pretty plausible considering some of the outrageous sort of <laughs> things that have come into my inbox. No one's called me like that. But she says they cut out important context that she was relaying sort of various ways she's been harassed since McAfee's, well, his death and during his life. I got a call from Texas. It's me, John. I paid off people to pretend that I am dead, but there are only three person in this world that knows that I'm still alive. That's when the documentary ends. You're like, holy shit, he's still alive. And what she says is they cut out what she said next, which is, and then I kept talking to the guy and I don't think it was John McAfee. I asked him a bunch of questions he couldn't answer. Right. Also in the piece, it goes over how they had interviewed John's ex-wife, obviously the mother of, of his daughter. As far as I know, the only next of kin of, of McAfee who has a birth certificate, his daughter, Jen, and that they interviewed his ex. She's elderly extensively, the filmmakers did, and didn't include any of that interview, which I do think would have probably cleared up a lot of other claims that are made by other subjects in the film, or at least, you know, misconstrued, however you want to look at it, regarding demonstrably false claims, I would say. And that is McAfee's supposed non-death, <laughs> that he somehow faked his own death, or that there is a, someone else's body in a morgue in Spain. If there was one original sin in this story from which so many mistakes and mistruths have spread. If you could trace it back and, and do some, one thing differently, and maybe this isn't just for you, but this is just kind of like, what's, what's the lesson for everybody? We didn't really have to give a shit about this guy. Yeah, that's a great lesson to learn. Nor do we have to give a shit about who's to blame, you know? In other words, you could look at it like, you don't have to give a shit about this story. But then the second part of that question is, what is the story? And the story became something that had nothing to do with the actual content, right? And now I've got people texting me 10 years later, either I can't believe this happened to you, this or that. And it's like, well, you know, I just would like to <laughs> be done with that part. But I'm happy that, you know, that people are seeing the footage, they're responding to it, whether that's negatively or positively. I certainly think it struck a, a nerve. I'm, I, I'm not really exactly sure what that nerve is yet. I didn't expect it to have such wide viewership. Rocco, thank you. Of course. Thank you, Jesse. That is your Canada land. Yeah, I got firebombed by an Islamic fundamentalist group in 2000. That's a great way to start off, isn't it? It was a great way to start that interview. That is a clip from my interview with Kid in the Hall, Scott Thompson, from seven years ago. That was a hell of a story. If you want to hear the rest of it, we have put together a curated playlist of Canada Land's best celebrity interviews from over the years. That's waiting for you right now if you are a paying Canada Land supporter on Apple Podcasts. Go check it out. You can email me about this show or anything on our network at jesse at canadaland.com. I do read every email you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with Cassidy villabern Baracus and Caleb Thompson. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called Syndication. is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Listen, if you like this show, if you want to get all of the bonus things that we make available to our supporters, and if you want to help us to keep independent journalism in Canada alive, please go to canadaland.com slash join 
click the link in the show notes. It takes a moment, and I promise you, it's actually fun to become a supporter of Canada Land. Yes, it is fun. 